0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. For ten days, the two Germans and I reveled in the unaccustomed joy of good food, cleanliness and comfortable sleeping quarter, but then I became restless once more. That's the writing of the indefatigable Denise Reutz, with whom we've travelled for these last 19 months. He began the war as a schoolboy and is now a veteran of this interminable and intractable clash. Between the British Empire and the Boer Republics. It's the third week of July 1901, and this winter has been cold even by the standards of South Africa's high plains. As I'm writing this, snow has blanketed parts of the semi desert known as the Karoo, and it was no different then. And Rates is close to this region. He had found a bolt hole near the Lesotho border, where he'd been hiding out with a handful of fellow travelers, as well as two Germans. They had been able to bathe for the first time in months, having found a copper cistern. Rates recovered during his short stint of R&R and was itching to rejoin the war. By the end of June, the small band led by Field Kornet Boerter started back down the mountains and headed towards the Orange River, which is the border between the Free State and the Cape Colony. It was now July. As they rode, they saw a rider approaching. It was a young man named Jacobus Bosman. When we told him we were going to the Cape, he said he would come too. As he was one of the Cape rebels who had joined the Boers during their temporary occupation of Colesburg in the beginning of the war, I advised him to stay where he was, for if he were captured on British territory, it would go hard with him. He would have been shot or hanged as a traitor. But Bosman said it was worth the risk. So Rates and his German troop enlisted him. Unfortunately for Bosman, he should have listened to the advice, for as we will see, His is not a happy ending. After three days of progress, this quixotic group, or Dirty Dozen, as the Dutch historian Martin Bossenbroek calls them, are back on the open plains within sight of the Johannesburg-Wilfertain railway line. By now, Lord Kitchener's blockhouse system is causing the Boer guerrilla army some problems, because these are close together and crossing the railway line has become very difficult during the day. Still, they were not fully formed yet as a network, as Reitz explains. As I spent the rest of the war roving the Cape Colony, I did not experience the full effect of this network, but I have heard that it caused the Free State and Transvaal Commandos a great deal of trouble, and in the end contributed largely to the breakup of the Boer resistance. He writes this in his memoirs of the war called Commando, published 1902. This intrepid group watched small parties of soldiers dotted along the railway track, who were engaged in building blockhouses, and then decided to cross. We had no difficulty in galloping across the metals, despite a fairly heavy rifle fire and having safely negotiated the line, we rode on. They passed north of Brantford Village, which became famous later as the place where Nelson Mandela's wife was sent during her long years under house arrest. That night, they slept in a maize field. Next morning, just before sunrise, we heard the crack of distant rifle shots and shortly after, two burghers rode by. It was still dark. An English column was riding towards them, and Wraiths and his companions leapt aboard their horses and joined the two, who were on their way to a nearby woman's lager. They had no idea the English were close and should be warned, said the two men. But they weren't strangers. One of these men, Pete Marais, was an old acquaintance whom I had known as a compositor in a newspaper office at Bloemfontein. A compositor was someone who laid out the iron blocks of words or letters known as movable type on a wooden pallet before the newspaper was printed. Marais had inherited a farm nearby and was visiting when he saw the British approach. The sun crested the rise as these men rode together and they were able to see the English column crawling along the road some miles behind. They counted there were 1,500 horsemen, leading a string of wagons and several guns. And before them they saw the women's lager, there were 50 wagons and carts with over 200 women and children, the collective non-combatant population of the district. Remember, these loggers were trying to get away from the British because the women and children were being marched off to the concentration camps, and they were desperate to avoid these disease-ridden hellholes. The women packed up when they heard the Englishmen nearby. English propaganda of the day suggested that the women and children were dying on the felt, living in squalor, but the reality was they were far better off in the open air at this time than in the tent villages, which became known as concentration camps. In a very short time the lager was moving off, Rates observed. Women trotted alongside the teams with whips and quirts, while the children peered out anxiously beneath the hoods at the dust clouds in the distance, which betokened the approaching enemy. It was a race to escape. Fortunately for the women, they had two things going for them. Firstly, that part of the felt they were rushing along was flat and their speed was good. And secondly, they had rates and the other men who lagged behind in order to slow the British down with some well-aimed rifle fire. While the women's lager headed for the Fett River, the men were riding up in twos and threes from various points until the rearguard was around 40 men strong. Then they began practicing the old tactics of galloping across the front of the English advance to fire a few shots, and then falling back to repeat the process further on as soon as the shell fire from the English artillery became too hot. After a few hours, it was clear the women had escaped. It's always amazing to me how a group of civilians and ox wagons were able to outrun the might of the British army mounted on horses. However, things were not all over for rates. He savoured the women's escape, and by three in the afternoon, the English stopped and turned out the animals to graze. He then rode up to a copy with his companions, and had a bit of shut-eye after the busy day. Before long, we heard a clatter, and jumping to our feet, we saw a group of mounted soldiers coming at a gallop. The Boers had been tricked by the British. The wily commander knew that once he stopped, the Boers would rest, and so he sent out a small force to catch them unprepared. Our lookout had not trouble to keep awake, Raid says bitterly, and the horsemen were within 600 yards of us before we heard them. And worse, the British were riding with two pom-pom guns. These are automatic cannon that caused so much carnage already. The Boers loosed a single volley and then were running for their lives. Rifle bullets were soon spitting about our ears and shells were bursting further on, he writes. But as we were riding wide, no one was hit, although once... When we were bunched together at a gap in the fence, a shell pitched right among us and killed a lead horse whose blood spattered on my face. Riding hard, they escaped this close call, but were shaken by how swiftly the English had moved towards them. The mobility of the British units had improved by now, and it was far more of an equal cut and thrust on the plains of South Africa. So, after escaping, the Free Staters split from rates and his men, and the youngster turned his commander south to recross the Fett River and aimed for the Orange River. As they crossed the Fete, the English watched the Boers from their camp. Both sides had decided that further fighting at this point was fruitless. The recent fighting had created a logistic problem for Rates. He was running short of ammunition. Remember, right now the Boers were desperately short of all material, but all was not lost. For the next two days, we followed the road by which the English force had travelled to pick up Lee Metford cartridges. The English soldiers were notoriously careless with their ammunition. If a round or two dropped from their bandoliers, they would never trouble to dismount, as they knew they could get more. The Boers focused on the halting places where the columns had stopped to feed their animals or to rest, and here they found cartridges spilt in the grass. In fact, the Boers now used the British columns to replenish their own shortages. So much was this the case that latterly it had become a regular practice to trail the columns sometimes... For a week on end, to glean these crumbs from the rich man's table. Life's rates. In warfare, the well-supplied and stocked army seems always spendthrift. I've seen this both in a conventional war and a bush war. Things are wasted when you think you're all-powerful. I doubt if the British ever realised to what extent the Boers were dependent upon the source of replenishment, he says. As they rode, it was apparent just how destructive the drives had been. The policy of rooting out Boer support by blowing up and burning farmhouses, setting fire to crops. Scorched earth policy that was now slowly throttling the Boer support, but also infuriating the hardliners. Nothing hearts and minds about what was going on. It was the stick approach. There was no carrot. For the rest, we rode over interminable plains, devoid of human beings, says our narrator. We did not see a single homestead that was not in ruins and at some places lay hundreds of sheep clubbed to death or bayoneted by the English troops in pursuance of the scheme of denuding the country of livestock to starve out the boers. But there were still live sheep to be found and of course plenty of wild animals. There were plenty of springbok besides so we did not lack meat, he observes. It was hard nevertheless, no salt, bread, soap, tobacco, no books. We had almost forgotten the taste of tea, coffee, sugar, and vegetables. If a man was not lucky enough to possess a tinder box, he had to expend a valuable rifle cartridge every time he wished to light the fire. And they had to light fires. It was midwinter. There was ice in every pool, and as they slept in tattered clothes and threadbare blankets, it was cold. Things were difficult for the Boers in the plains at this time. After a few more days, they came across a wondrous but frustrating sight. They had reached Abrahams Kraal across the Modder River and were facing a line of military posts around 60 miles long. Behind this post lay tens of thousands of head of sheep and cattle taken from the farms. And Reitz's gang couldn't get to them because every 2,000 yards or so was an English army post consisting of 10 to 12 tents with dozens of troops. The Boers' horses were too tired to dash through this defensive network, so they turned westward looking for a gap to slink through towards the Orange River. Then a heliograph started winking from a copy, and before long there was activity, soldiers running for their horses and others galloping from the plain. They had stirred the hornet's nest into action. Instead of running, the little group of boers turned to ride between two of these guard camps, aiming at a chain of hills beyond, firing from the saddles and getting well peppered in the return, as Rates explains. A desultory exchange of rifle fire from a distance then took place, but neither side appeared to have the appetite for a full-blown firefight. The British went back to minding the herd, and the Boers rode on. The next day, Rates and his dirty dozen bumped into a larger commando of forty men, led by a field cornet called Blichnout. They were now in the Foreesmith district, only fifty miles from their first objective, the Orange River. I was yet to discover that it was further off than it seemed, writes Reitz cryptically. The English were fully aware of plans at this stage that Rates was not. Jan Smuts was riding towards the Orange River at the same time with plans to reconstitute a large commando of over a thousand men which was going to ride into the Cape Colony and attack the English on home soil, so to speak. So they have increased their vigilance along this strategic river. When we told Blichnolt of our plan of invasion from here, he strongly advised us against the attempt. He said that if we crossed the Orange River here, we should find ourselves in open, arid country where our horses would surely starve and we would be ridden down by the first British force that saw us. He suggested they turn east towards the Orange River headwaters in the Lesotho Mountains, which were 150 miles away, then turn south from there, where the grazing was better and the English thinner on the ground. They were also reminded of the disaster that had overtaken General Herzog's venture to the south. It seemed that, like a cave in the fable, many tracks led over the river, but few came back. The Germans riding with Reitz began to waver, and Cornet Brüder was with them and thought better of the trip. It took the youngsters, Jakubus, Bosman and Reitz, to talk them into a better frame of mind, as he puts it, but they did agree to turn east. Their goal was so close yet so far. Still, they were on the move once more, and the next day they were near Edinburgh. That night, a sturdy little Shetland pony wandered into their camp from the English. It was lost, and Reitz decided he could use this animal if they were to ride into the mountains once more. It was just as well as it turned out, he says. That night, as they tried to cross a railway line, they blundered into one of the infamous blockhouses. There was no moon, and they had no scouts for help. We were met with the usual, halt, who goes there, followed by rifle shots, so we bore away. They were faced with barbed wire alongside the tracks. Once more, the defensive system the British were building was working for rates and a fellow Boer called Versteher then tried to file through the wire. The file grating across the taut wires made a tremendous noise. And before we had cut even one strand, we were again challenged. They were fired at by a sentry. He was only 20 yards away. It was a shock and they crawled away to join the rest of the commando. Then, back on their horses, as they rode, the small group of men hit another of the British defensive structures, low-lying strands of wire entanglements, which had been constructed like a spider's web. They were now in the thick of this mess. I explained in episode 78 how effective these webs had been, and our rates was blundering about in the middle of the English barbed wire web. In approaching the railway, we had somehow or other missed these entanglements, But we're now in the thick of them, and the tins always attached to them were clanging and jangling and increasing the terror of our animals. Added to this din was the sound of British rifles and machine guns. The blockhouse was only a few yards away. In the darkness, the two boers had mistaken the blockhouse for a small mound of rocks, a copy. Our narrator is in real trouble. A rifle fire at point-blank range is unpleasant at the best of times, he says in his usual dry way. But when one is on a maddened horse staggering amid wire loops, it is infinitely more so. It was also pitch dark, which saved rates and his fellow staggerers. The British could not see them either, and as anyone who has fought an enemy at night, sounds carry in the strangest ways. In fact, the sense of smell is often more useful at close range. So the British fired at their noisy cans at the end of the wire, not at where the wires were being tugged back and forth by the wheeling horses. Then, disaster, Rates's horse was hit by a round. I was nearly pinned beneath him, he writes, but unbuckling the girth and dragging his saddle away from the now dead animal, he was saved. The other boers, who were safely behind a nearby small rise, were whistling and eventually Rates extricated himself from the matrix of madness. Luckily, he had left his new Shetland pony acquisition with the men before trying to cut the wire and then saddled up the small animal. We galloped off, leaving the soldiers firing blindly into the night. But the blockhouses were working. The Boers' mobility had been severely restricted at the most strategically important points, from the Cape border through the Free State and into the Transvaal. The British were also now using Boer tactics more effectively themselves. Rates and the commander made it to high ground in the dark and rested. But before dawn the next day, English horsemen were heard racing towards them. There were one hundred or so, and once more the Boers were forced to retreat. We got safely into the hills at Boermplatz. my Shetland pony going surprisingly well. By a strange twist of fate, after the English horsemen turned back, this small band arrived at an historic cemetery. It was where a battle took place in 1848 between Sir Harry Smith and the Boers. This graveyard was of some personal interest to me, because it had almost caused my father the loss of his position as president of the Free State when I was a boy, he announces. His father was a fair-minded man. The British government had erected headstones over the fallen soldiers, inscribed with the words, Killed in action against the rebel boers. Over time, these stones fell into disrepair, so Rates senior had ordered replicas with the original inscription to be copied and reinstalled at the spot. This incensed indignant patriots, who considered the inclusion of the phrase rebel as unacceptable and insult. So, Reid Sr. almost lost the next presidential election in consequence. However, there's another reason for this youngster to remember this moment when he wrote his memoirs later. Field Cornet Boerter, technically his senior, sat down with him now and asked him to forget about his plan to invade the Cape. For nearly five hours, they argued back and forth. Jacobus Bosman was with Rates, but they were facing 10 others who'd had a change of heart. So it was then at the small symbolic cemetery that the Dirty Dozen broke up. Even the two Germans, Haase and Polacek, who had travelled with Rates for months, gave up. They saddled their horses and left. Bosman and I spent the night beside the graveyard, feeling too depressed to light the fire. Their lack of attention to detail was going to cause both even more trouble As we'll hear next week, their horses would wander off during the night. Clearly, the Shetland pony was in a habit of wandering about and took the other horse along for the ride this time. It's also time for the bandits and Boer thieves to make their appearance. But that's for next week. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, and you can also comment to make suggestions by sending me a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham, or email me through our website, abwarpodcast.com. Thanks to all those who sent me messages in the last week. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs> That on the mill is die door and boom, die